0: I just finished recording with Noam Chomsky. This is just an editor's note. His audio is poor, and there's nothing that we can do. This tends to happen when someone changes location, or if they're not well versed enough to fix the issue because they're not familiar with computers enough, they don't know how to tweak the settings. However, there are great questions from Yosha Bach, from Professor Avi Loeb, from Carl Fristin, from Philip Goff, from Tim Maudlin. So many great questions, so please endure, persist past it. Donald Hoffman even has some questions about space-time is doomed. As usual, because Chomsky is not hearing well, I've printed out the questions for him beforehand, and so you'll hear me refer, okay, go to question 25, go to question 22, and so on. This is because we can't have a usual back and forth like it would with a regular toe guest They can hear me, a regular toe guest but Chomsky has a difficult time, so we have to stick straight to questions, answers, questions, answers. Okay, now on to the regular introduction. This is the eighth time that I've been lucky enough to speak to Professor Chomsky, the father of modern linguistics, and in keeping with the vein of To, we adhere to philosophy, consciousness, meaning, rather than, say, politics. There's a playlist in the description with each of Chomsky's Theories of Everything appearances catalogued below. And coming up in about three weeks, I'll be posting a three-hour behemoth compilation of the best of Gnome's philosophical thoughts on To, with subtitles hard-coded in. If you'd like to volunteer some assistance to double-check that the captions are indeed correct, because there's plenty of specialized terminology and names, then DM me on Twitter at ToeWithKurt. That is at T-O-E-W-I-T-H-C-U-R-T. Enjoy this eighth episode with Noam Chomsky. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for joining me for the eighth time. Thank you. Please to be with again. So, Yosha Bach asks, What is the most important unsolved problem in cognitive science?
1: Well, there are different criteria to determine what's the most important problem. For the working scientist, the most important problems unsolved are the ones right at the border of understanding, the ones that you have some grasp about how to approach, uh, but haven't really solved. Those are the ones you work on. Well... By that criterion, there's endless numbers of important unsolved problems. uh, Depending on what area you're in, you can enumerate any number of them. They won't be meaningful to others unfamiliar with your area of research. I think what the problem may be the question driving at is far-reaching problems, problems which have large consequences. In that case, there are also many, but uh, the most important one from that I think of is the problem uh, of voluntary action. So there's a famous state of the art article on this. two of the leading researchers, uh, Emilio Bezi, Roberta Jamian, came out in uh, Daedalus Journal of the American Academy, a couple of years ago. And they run through what has been discovered about this problem and what remains unsolved. And they put the question fancifully, as they say, at the end. They say, we have a grasp on how to deal with the puppet and the the strings. But we can't say anything about the puppeteer, no matter how much they search, no matter what experiments they carry out, neural experiments and others. I can't figure out what lies behind uh, my decision to, say, raise my finger versus not to, or my decision to give one rather than another response to this question. That is a very far-reaching question. I think it's completely unresolved. Uh, There are many, many scientists who feel that we have an answer. Uh, The answer is determined by complex physical laws and so on and so forth, Uh, phenomena that uh, structures that are much too complex to deal with. Uh, That's a thesis uh, that is vacuous, uh, unverifiable. If it makes you feel comfortable to add it, okay. It's not doing anything. So I think that's a completely unsolved problem.
0: We'll go to question 1c, still Yoshabak. In which ways did you update your thinking on AI in the past five years?
1: Basically, I haven't. And the reason is that AI has not advanced in the last five years in ways which have anything to do with my thinking about it. It has advanced in many areas, but they just aren't related to my thinking about it. So, for example, uh, there are recent successes of the deep learning programs which have uh, cast light, significant light. On serious problems of science, like uh, protein folding. The methods that are used are not of a kind that bear on AI. The preceding question asks whether the recent successes of machine learning surprise me. Well, that assumes that there are recent successes. I don't know of any in the areas that I work in, mostly language. Uh, There's uh, lots of uh, achievements, uh, so-called achievements, that receive plenty of enthusiastic uh, press commentary. But when you look into them, uh, they're telling us basically nothing. Uh, So take the GPT series, which uh, has received a lot of uh, uh, enthusiastic commentary or Lambda or others like it. I don't see what's successful about these. What has been shown is that if you toss a couple of supercomputers at uh, 50 terabytes of data, you can find surface regularities, uh, which uh, if you put them together, delude people into thinking that the program is doing something. Doesn't sound very interesting to me. We know that the programs are not doing anything because uh, they fail the most elementary condition required for an an explanation. Uh, Namely, that you say why things are this way and, crucially, why they're not some other way. Uh, If I uh, come to a Physics conference. Day. I've got a terrific theory which uh, includes all the laws of nature—the ones you've discovered, the ones you haven't yet discovered—and the theory is so simple I can say it in just two words: anything goes. I don't get any prizes. It doesn't say why things are not some other way. And that's what all of these programs do—they work just as well for. Us impossible systems, as for possible ones. A system, if you give it a corpus, a massive corpus that violates the basic principles of language, it'll work fine, maybe even better. So therefore, whatever it's doing, it's not telling us anything about language or cognition. And it seems to me that all of the systems that I'm familiar with that have that problem. So there's not, no successes that are surprising. There are very useful achievements. So, for example, the uh, life transcription, which I rely on because I'm hard of hearing. It's a fine achievement. I'm glad that uh, Google took the trouble to create it. But it's telling us nothing about uh, the way. Humans interpret sentences, they don't surprise me, and I've, there's been nothing to update my thinking. But they're a useful achievement, the protein fold case.
0: The next question is, brains and minds work very differently from today's neural networks. Do you think that today's approaches can be scaled and improved to reach human-like intelligence? Or do we need to divest from deep learning, go back to the drawing board and build something different from scratch if we want to get close to human performance?
1: No, I don't think the deep learning approach has anything to do with the way minds work. They're very useful. A lot of uh, serious, sophisticated math uh, other major achievements, but it's about something different, not the way minds work. part for the reasons I just mentioned, doesn't distinguish the way brains and minds work from the way they don't work. As long as you don't make that distinction, there's nothing said about how brains and minds work. In the specific case of language, the one I've looked at most closely, the problem is exactly what I mentioned. The systems like the GPT series and the others do just as well on non-languages as on languages. So they're very much like that uh, Imagine talk to the physics conference. It's not telling you anything about language by definition.
0: Okay, the next one, 1E. Is consciousness crucial to building systems that learn, think, and create at a human level?
1: Consciousness is part of the way Humans learn, think, and create. Maybe not a very major part. Most of what our mental activities are, both in what's called learning, thinking, and creating, is inaccessible to consciousness. So there's an awful lot going on that uh, we're totally unaware of and can't become aware of. But consciousness enters at some level here and there. Uh, So if anything, is going to think, learn, and create the way humans do, it will have to involve consciousness. Now, when we say at a human level, that opens other questions. What's a human level? We'd have to answer that before we know the, the answer to this question. And I don't know of any characterization of at a human level, other than saying, this is the way humans do it. Presumably at a human level includes things that are not the way humans do it, but somehow reach that level. But then we have to have a characterization of what the level is. I don't know of
0: any. Okay. And number 1F. So the next one, are you a Mysterian? still in the sense that understanding mind and consciousness is not possible for us? Or do you feel there's a research direction that you can sketch out?
1: First of all, I've never held that it's not possible for us. In fact, I think we can understand quite a lot about mind and consciousness. There are many questions that we have no answers to, even bad answers, and that have withstood inquiry for ages still do, like the one I mentioned in citing Beatsy and uh, Meiji and uh, Jamie, uh, is that within the realm of possible human understanding, well, that goes back to an earlier question. Are humans organisms in the normal sense, or are they outside the range of organisms? I think humans are organisms. If so, they're going to be like other organisms. Their capacities have and limits. The scope and the limits are related. Uh, they have to do with the internal essential nature of the organism. So, if you're, a, say, a rat, you can be trained to solve many kinds of mazes, but you can't solve the prime number maze in which you have to turn right at every prime number option. And the reason is prime number is just not within the cognitive capacity of a rat. There are many things that are not within our cognitive capacity. So I happen to live in the desert. uh, Out in my backyard or desert ants who have minuscule brains but are capable of cognitive achievements that humans can't attain, like their navigational capacities. We can maybe duplicate it with instruments to an extent, but I can't find my way around the way an ant can. So that's a limit to my capacities. Uh, Do we have other kinds of limits? Well, if we're... Organisms. We doubtless then comes the question everyone's interested in: is something like the ability to make distinctions, whatever it is, is that is the explanation of that outside the range of our cognitive capacities? It's an empirical question. Is there a research direction you can sketch out? Sure, the one that's pursued, for example, by uh, Betsy and Jamie and. Very good scientists, they try to find out. They haven't been able to. Is it beyond their cognitive
0: methods? We simply don't know. Question number two comes from Professor Donald Hoffman. 2A, what do you think about the claim that Nima Arkani-Hamed, David Gross, and other physicists are making that space-time is doomed, that we must look for new structures utterly beyond space-time and quantum theory that give rise to space-time and quantum theory?
1: Of these three questions, A, B, and C, uh, the first two, A and B, are utterly beyond my competence to answer. Just don't know enough about quantum theory or the arguments given, so I- can't say anything about it.
0: Okay, so we'll go to 2C. What about what these discoveries of letting go of space-time might entail for the mind-body problem? By Professor Donald Hoffman.
1: I have an opinion, for whatever it's worth, that they don't entail anything for the mind-body problem, because there is no such problem. There was a mind-body problem at one time. Uh, A classic uh, exposition of it is uh, Descartes, of course. Descartes argued, claimed in his physics that he uh, he was able to account for aspects of the world, including most of the properties of humans, by keeping within what was called at the time the mechanical philosophy. Philosophy just meant science mechanical science, its basic conception of science that held from Galileo through Newton, Uh, namely that the world is a complex of the kind that's constructed by skilled artisans. At the time in Europe, there was a proliferation of Complex objects, which are structures that were developed by highly skilled artisans, which amazed people in their um, conformity and their similarity to what uh, humans could do or what other animals could do. And the basic conception was well, the world is just something created by an incomparably more skilled artisan, gears, levers, uh, and so on. Descartes thought erroneously, that his physical theory would account for almost all of nature within this framework. It wasn't accurate. I mean, the systems didn't work. In fact, one of Newton's contributions was to go through it, but it was understood by other scientists, Huygens and others, that Descartes' physics just didn't work. But uh, he had an explanation for everything in those terms then observed correctly that there are certain things that don't fall within mechanical explanation. One of his major examples, in fact, was pretty much what I said before, except he was talking about language, not lifting your finger. So he said the capacity of humans in ordinary discussion, ordinary interchange, ordinary thought, to uh, construct new expressions of thought which have never occurred before and which are appropriate to situations but not caused by them. That's the system he was considering, certainly seems to be a normal property of human behavior. He argued, plausibly, that that doesn't fall within mechanical science. So therefore, as a scientist, he postulated a new principle, Risk cogitance, thinking substance. Then you had a mind-body problem. How are these two substances related? That problem disappeared with Newton, who showed that there are no bodies in Descartes' sense. There's no physical entities in anything like the sense of early modern science. Uh, Newton himself thought this uh, result was completely absurd. He argued no person with any scientific understanding could accept it. And in fact, he spent the rest of his life trying to overcome uh, Finally, and his contemporaries like Huygens and uh, Leibniz noticed what they were saying that it wasn't that Newton's theories were unintelligible. They could understand the theories fine. It was the kind of world that he was postulating that was absurd. And in fact, it's in that context that Newton made his famous statement that uh, uh, he proposes no hypotheses. He was providing just a mathematical theory, not a physical theory. Uh, Finally, over time, uh, Newton's Uh, mathematical theories were accepted, and scientists lost interest in whether the theory, if the theory was intelligible, whether what it described was intelligible. That question just disappeared. As far as I can see, the mind probably, mind-body probably disappeared with it. We have no conception of body other than what our best theories postulate, which just as well includes mine. In fact, John Locke drew that conclusion right away. Said, for all we know, the organized matter just has properties we can't conceive of, like action, interaction without contact. Contact. So it may also have properties like thinking. He put this in a theological context, but we can drop that. Pursued through the eighteenth century very extensively, problem of thinking matter, what properties of matter yield you know, thinking where matter is whatever the world is constituted of. Now we still have basically no answers then. So it's I just don't see how a mind body problem, at least in the classical sense, can be formulated after we, well, I don't know of any other sense in which it can.
0: Question number three, this one comes from Professor Avi Loeb. Imagine that we will develop sentient AI systems, and these will be able to interact with each other. Do you expect them to develop their own kinship, including a language that is more advanced than human languages, and that humans will not be able to follow? In such a case, they might be able to establish their own society of AI systems we could always unplug them from their electric outlet, although some will view that as equivalent to murder. Hear that sound? of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothys, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit HensonShaving.com slash everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to dot com slash everything and use the code everything.
1: Well, to answer this question, we have to have a concept of sentient AI systems. There certainly are. If by sentient, we mean capable of interacting with one another, responding to one another states and so on, responding to features of the environment that are significant for our choice of action and so on. If that's what we mean by it, there are many sentient systems, humans, animals, trees, So take trees. Trees are sentient in this sense. If you have a forest, the trees interact with one another. They send signals to one another. They change what they do dependent on the signals they receive from others. Of course, they respond to the environment. So these seem to be sentient systems in any sense of the word that I know of. Uh, They do interact with each other they don't develop their own kinship or language and so on. The answer to whether sentient systems will do this is, well, obviously not, because plenty don't, just as animals don't. What about sentient AI systems? Well, that depends on how an AI system differs from natural systems. What's an AI system? Basically, an AI system is a program The program is basically a theory that uh, is presented in a notation that uh, the computer can implement. So we're basically asking, uh, can we develop sentient theories? I'm not sure exactly what that means. Maybe theories of sentience. Can we develop theories of sentience? Now we're back to the earlier questions. Is this within, to a certain extent, of course we can. We have many such theories. Are they complete? No, they're not complete. Uh, But of course we expect theories not to be complete. Is the possibility of completing them within human cognitive capacity? We never know. If we agree that we're organisms, If we're mysterians in that sense, yes, we're organisms, not angels, then could be, could not be. So I don't see how to pursue the question any further for these reasons.
0: Okay, question number four from Professor Carl Fristen. Do you think machines will ever talk to each other or us? And let's define talk as posing questions and answers in the service of resolving uncertainty about the world or one another. What I'm getting at here is whether any sentient artifact can communicate with another sentient artifact, or whether two artifacts have to share a common ground or narrative that inherits from them having the same kind of phenotype and experiences. Let's take
1: trees again there's sentient, natural artifacts. They share a common ground, and narrative in some sense, which they inherit, and uh, they do interact with one another. So there are natural objects that have this property. Well, let's go back to machines. First of all, remember what we all know. When In the framework that we're discussing, artificial intelligence, when we talk about machines, we don't mean the physical object, we mean the program. Alan Turing initiated the contemporary field of artificial intelligence with his famous 1950 paper on uh, Can Machines Think? He didn't mean uh, Does a Computer Think? He meant, is there a program that thinks? He regarded that question, as you recall, as being too meaningless to deserve discussion because we had no clear concept of thinking. He proposed some alternative concept is imitation thing. Uh So when we ask whether machines, sentient artifacts will talk to each other, we're asking, are there programs that can interact with each other? I suppose, so. Why not? If trees can do it, we can construct a program that can do it. They have to share some kind of common ground or they won't be able to interact. But uh, they do have experiences. They're affected by the environment. Same type of phenotype. Yes, in some sense, there's going to be something common about them. So it seems to me, as far as I understand it, maybe I'm missing something question seems to me to be left at that level. Uh, can we construct programs which will pose and answer questions? They won't resolve uncertainty about the world because the programs have no concept of certainty about the world. It just doesn't arise for programs. People using the programs might find that they resolve some uncertainty about the world
0: Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: Just as the programs for protein folding did resolve some uncertainty about the world or uh, Say a, a theorem proving program, which say used brute force to prove theorems, starting with the axioms, running through all possible proofs from shortest to longer, and you'll finally hit a proof if it's a theorem. Well, that would relieve uncertainty about mathematics, but the program wouldn't know anything about it. We know about it.
0: The next question, number five. Professor Tim Modlin, he said, because I emailed him and asked him if he had any questions for you. Actually, I just mentioned Chomsky in my graduate class. I said, because I heard this, that Chomsky was inspired to postulate universal grammar because of Goodman's new riddle of induction. That is because that riddle that Chomsky thought there must be some a priori constraint on natural languages in order that they're learnable. I'm curious whether this is historically accurate, and if it is, do you still think universal grammar is the right way to express this constraint?
1: Well, uh, I assume you know what Goodman's new riddle is, uh, put it very simply, he was asking which kinds of predicates are projectable in the sense that they fit into law-like statements and we can use them to what's coming next. So the example, the famous example that he gave was the predicate GRU, G-R-U-E, which is defined as meaning uh, green before time T, Where T is some time in the future, blue after time T. And then take a look at all emeralds. We're before time T. They're all green. They're all grew. But depending on whether we project green or grew, we'll make a different prediction for after time T. Then Goodman argued that grew is not projectable and green is projectable. Actually, I was a student of his when he was working this out and discussing it in courses. That's basically, the, it had, to answer the question, it had nothing to do with my own views on universal grammar. I frankly did not think that his explanation about the distinction of the, he, he gave an argument to try to show that Green was projectable and grew wasn't, was never convinced that the argument went through. Uh, I was, of course, familiar with the uh, Hume's argument, which Goodman discusses in his book, but not quite accurately, Hume's famous uh, argument about induction is, uh, as Hume put it, "You have to assume that it's carried on because of a animal, what he called animal instinct." We have an instinct, as animals, that leads us to accept inductive reasoning in certain cases, not others. And in a way, spelled it out more carefully with some predicates and not others. And yes, I think that's the only answer to carrying out induction to the extent that we do some animal instinct. But I don't think you need that insight in order to postulate universal grammar. It's just that there's no alternative. I mean, There was a time when I was a student, in fact, back in the 1940s, 1950s, it was assumed that uh, language acquisition is a matter of training and habit, quoting the leading American linguist, uh, Leonard Bloomfield. Philosophy of language took essentially the same view, perhaps most influential uh, Anglo-American philosopher of language and mind. Uh, for him, language was uh, a complex of dispositions to respond, established by, uh, in his picture, by Skinnerian operant condition. Well, those views fall by the wayside. As soon as you take a look at the acquisition of language, It's nothing like that. Acquisition of language is based on what Hume called an animal instinct there's some capacity that a human infant has that its pet chimpanzee doesn't have, uh, which enables the human infant to quickly acquire a language on the basis of scattered data, which for the chimp is just noise. That's got to be because of some animal instinct, if you like some innate capacity that's about as elementary as you can be but if there's an innate capacity there should be a theory of that innate capacity the term universal grammar in the modern sense is just the name for that theory so
0: hear that sound Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories.
1: Postulating universal grammar is elementary rationality. Uh, There's no alternative. Is it the right way to proceed expressing the constraints. I can't think what alternative there is. If you believe that there's something innate that distinguishes the infant from its pet chimp, which is certainly true, then this is what you have to
0: postulate. Okay, question 17. So, one, seven, 17. This is from Professor Philip Goff. We both agree with Russell, that physics tells us what matter does, but fails to reveal its intrinsic nature. Therefore, the only thing we know directly about the intrinsic nature of matter, is that some of it, i.e. the stuff in brains, is experiential. So either the matter outside of brains also has an experiential intrinsic nature, or it has some other property completely unknown nature. Surely the former option, i.e. panpsychism, is to be preferred on grounds of simplicity. What do you make of this argument? simplicity depends
1: on the simplicity of a theory. Depends on the evidence that you're considering. Consider different evidence different theories will be simpler or more difficult. So let's uh, accept the basic framework generally accepted in contemporary philosophy uh, within which this question arises. Uh, goes back to a distinction, goes back to David Chalmers' distinction between the easy problems of consciousness and the hard problem. Uh, the hard problem is supposed to be, what is it like to see a sunset? That's the hard problem. The easy problem is, you know, what are the neurological, genetic, uh, other properties that enter into being conscious of the sunset? I've, never been particularly happy with that formulation uh, because it's not very clear to me what the hard problem is. If I'm asked, what is it like to see the sunset that you're looking at, I can give a very detailed answer. red spot up here makes me feel happy. Go on and find that in extensive detail. So there's no problem in describing. What it's like to see that sunset. But if I'm asked, what is it like to see a sunset? I don't think that has an answer. At least I can't imagine what the answer is. And if a question doesn't have a formulable answer, it's not an authentic question. It's just a linguistic expression in uh, interrogative form. It's kind of on a par with uh, why do things happen? has the form of a question, but it's not a real question. There's no conceivable answers. So the hard problem, as far as I can see, doesn't really exist. We're left with the easy problem, which is, of course, very far from easy. What's going on when I see uh, the sunset? And I'm conscious of it? what I can describe in detail, what's going on. It's within that context that the question raised. Now, one answer to it is all of nature has the property of consciousness. That's one possibility. Another possibility, another answer that is often given is there is no consciousness. It's an illusion stuck with either of those answers. And I think it's, we can expect to find an answer which will say that consciousness is a property of humans, other animals, but not the table on which my computer is resting. Uh, is that a less simple answer than panpsychism? Depends on what our evidence is. So suppose someday we get real answers to the so-called easy problem. Suppose we find the neurological properties, genetic properties that enter into accounting for my moments of consciousness and for what is not what I know without consciousness, like most of my mental activities. Suppose we find a way of distinguishing those and distinguishing humans from tables. Well, then the simplest argument, I think, will take into account all of this, these discoveries and information. And then I don't think panpsychism any longer is the simplest answer. It's an answer that simply postulates something for which there's no evidence that particles have this property, even though we already have evidence that only certain kinds of organization of whatever the world is constituted of have this property. So, simplicity depends on what you're accounting for. The simplicity of a theory depends on what it's dealing with. If we take the full range of evidence that we hope to have by making progress with the so-called easy problem, then I think uh, we have simpler theories.
0: Okay, 24. Do you have a resolution to the liar's paradox?
1: No, nothing to say about the paradoxes that is at all new. A lot has been said about them, but I have
0: nothing to add. What about the raven paradox? Same story. It's
1: Temple's paradox. Again, I think they're reasonable answers, but I have
0: nothing to add to them. Okay, 26. So the next one. Each word in a dictionary is defined in terms of other words in a dictionary, which indicates that there are some fundamental concepts which have to be understood without reference to other words, like the axioms of a language, or that somehow the meaning of the words are inextricably tied to the relation that each word has to others. Are these the only two options?
1: We have to ask ourselves, are we talking about human language, or are we talking about formal systems that somebody constructed, like say, metamathematics or uh, quantum theory? There are different answers in these two cases. In the case of a formal system that someone constructs, uh, yes, there have to be some Fundamental concepts in terms of which others are defined. That's true for metamathematics. It's true for physics to the extent that it's formalized and so on. So then in that context, yes, it's correct. What about human language? Well, in human language, the question doesn't arise because words in the dictionary don't have definitions. When you look up a dictionary, say, most detailed dictionary you can find the OED. Take a look at the definition of a word there. It's nowhere near a definition. It's an explanation which gives a number of hints that enable you, with your rich, intuitive understanding of language, to guess what the word means. But you're doing most of the work, your mind. The dictionary is doing almost nothing. You try to define a simplest word you can think of, book, table, river, cat, whatever you want, has a rich and complex meaning, one which incidentally is known to infants without experience, which poses another fundamental problem. How are infants able to Acquire the rich and complex meaning of the most elementary words with only very few presentations, as has been shown by experimental studies. Serious problem, one of those. To go back to the first question, one of those deep ones, which we have no real answer to, but there are no definitions. There are only definitions for technical terms that are made up So if uh, somebody introduces the term uh, tensor, let's say, uh, they give the definition of it. But these are not the kinds of words that are just acquired in ordinary life. Those words don't have definitions. They are interrelated in all sorts of ways, but uh, there's no particular reason to believe that some of them, I mean, to some extent, some are going to be more fundamental than others, but there's no, we have no reason to believe that there's some finite set which is the basis, like an axiom system. I might add here, just for those of you who are interested, that there is very interesting work dealing with the question of how we use our lexical items, what words are not really the right uh, units. but the minimal meaning bearing items, how do we use them? There's two different theories about this. One is that, let's call them words for simplicity. One is that the words are stored. We have a store of words in our mind. We access the words when we're trying to understand a sentence or to hear the sentence. That's pretty much the standard theory. There's an alternative, which is quite interesting, uh, developed mostly by Alec Morant, a linguist, a neuroscientist at NYU, uh, he's argued that we don't store the words, we store the rules for creating words. And whether a word is actually in the used in the lexicon or not is kind of irrelevant. And he has quite interesting arguments, neurological, psycholinguistic, and others arguing that the storage is actually just the generative rules, not the words themselves. So a possible word, word, which doesn't happen to be in our lexicon, say, Blake, is treated the same way as one that isn't. Well, that's a, quite an interesting scientific question.
0: Dawkins introduced the concept of extended phenotype. Is there any relation between language and extended phenotype?
1: Depends what we mean by language. Uh, language is one of those informal terms of general usage. It's much too imprecise to discuss. So, like anything else in the sciences, when linguists try to discuss and understand something about language, or psychologists or neurologists, they give a technical definition of language. Uh, So, for example, if... uh, If a physicist is asked, what's energy, what's work, what's spin, they're not going to give you the definition that's in ordinary language. There are no definitions. What they'll do is define the technical term, which is different from the one in ordinary language. And the same is true here. So we have to ask, what do we mean by language? Well, if we mean the technical notion that I would call eye language, internal language, then extended phenotypes have nothing to do with it. If we use the word language in a loose figurative common sense, then maybe extended phenotypes have something to do with it.
0: Is our obsession with the Turing test a holdover of the influence of behaviorism? Does a behavior, however convincing, ever decisively imply consciousness? Should we be using some other test other than the Turing test?
1: Well, first, of all, I might mention as a historical fact that uh, the Turing test actually goes back to the 17th century, uh, after uh, Descartes' postulation of a second substance for things like the creative use of language, uh, his associates, uh, mainly Jacques de Cordemois, took the obvious next step and said, can we discover experimental tests that will tell us whether a creature that looks like us has this property or not? And then he went through various things, which are kind of like Turing's imitation game, so that's basically the Turing test, but there it was uh, for a fundamental scientific reason to find out a property of an or- of an organism. Well, as I said, that kind of disappeared with Newton. Uh, does if we can test behaviors with the Turing's Turing's imitation game, does that imply consciousness? No, not. You could make up a program that can do it, which has no consciousness. Should we be using some other test? Depends what we're trying to achieve. Uh, I don't see any particular purpose in trying to understand, to determine whether a machine is doing some a machine meaning program, is doing something like thinking, but if we regard it, a significant question. Well, we use whatever test uh, fits our particular definition of thinking or whatever we're looking for.
0: Okay, question number 30: With colorless ideas that swim furiously, you showed that you can have syntactic sense without semantic sense. Outside of idioms and common phrases, Can something make semantic sense without being syntactic? So if so, can this apply to math or physics? That is, it seems like in math and physics, as soon as you don't have syntactic sense, then the whole equation, the mathematical sentence, is not well posed and thus is meaningless. Can you imagine cases where we have ill-defined mathematical statements that have meaning?
1: Plenty of examples in the history of mathematics. So, take for example, uh, there was, take just something as simple as arithmetic or geometry. I mean, arithmetic and geometry were studied highly productively, literally for millennia before the concepts were well defined. No, there wasn't a well defined uh, uh, there, there weren't good, serious in the modern sense, definitions of basic concepts of arithmetic until about the 1860s. dedekind and uh, Peana gave, well-defined, uh, the concepts of arithmetic. so. Uh, ge- geometry wasn't formalized until Hilbert, around 1900, uh, but of course it had been used forever, uh, productively and effectively. And it's not until the formalization that they're well-defined. Kind of a famous case is uh, the concept of limit. If you go back to the 17th century, calculus, Newton, Leibniz's calculus, were based on some intuitive concept of limit. In fact, there's a long debate in the history of mathematics as to whether Newton's proofs actually involve an equivocation in the use of zero. Is it the case that in one line, Newton used zero to mean zero, and another line, he used it to mean as small as possible? He had no theory of limits. Well, long debate about that. But uh, what happened apparently, histories of mathematics say uh, don't know much about this myself, I'm just relying on the history, that uh, British mathematicians worked hard on trying to sharpen and clarify the notions, which actually wasn't really done until the mid-19th century. Uh, continental mathematic- mathematicians basically ignored it. Uh, Gauss, the other, Euler, the other great mathematicians, and they developed most of classical analysis based on ill-defined notions while the British mathematicians for the most part were stymied because they didn't really have a clear notion. Well, so yes, you can certainly imagine such cases. In fact, there are plenty of them.
0: There were two additional questions, one anonymous and the other by Professor Norman Weilberger, which we didn't get to, so we got to over email. Professor Norman Weilberger says, Here's a question I would like to ask Professor Chomsky. Is there any linguistic evidence for universal, or almost universal, innate mathematical notions in humans? Maybe notions is not the right word here. If not, how does one frame a meaningful question in this direction? And now I'll get a computer to read Chomsky's answer.
2: Definitely. Knowledge of arithmetic is a classic case. The topic of a famous debate between Darwin and Wallace. Both recognized that knowledge of arithmetic is universal, though it plainly couldn't have been selected. Wallace suggested some new force operating in evolution. Darwin was unwilling to accept that. It plainly must be innate. There's no way to learn that the integers go on forever. There's some reason to believe that it may have the same origins as the language faculty. The simplest language would have a single lexical item and the simplest rule internal merge that yields the successor function and the rudiments of addition from there it's not hard to go on to addition so whatever rewiring of the brain that yielded recursive enumeration apparently unique to humans could have provided the basis for both language and arithmetic as for mathematics generally that's another matter there's a famous comment of kronecker's that god created the natural numbers and man created the rest which translates as arithmetic is innate but human creativity, whatever that is, created the set theory and on from there.
0: And the second question is, how far does grammar extend? People talk about the grammar of narratives and stories or the grammar of video games, such as common tropes and patterns ingrained in players that are unconscious and widely used across almost each video game. Is this a generalization of grammar that bears only a passing resemblance to the linguistic concept of grammar, or is there some common neurological, even psychological basis between these types of quote unquote grammars? There's no clear answer. We can extend terms to broader uses like quote unquote the language of the stars. It's not arbitrary, but there are no clear principles. The term Grammar, without any such metaphorical extensions, is itself much too imprecise to use in studying language. So it's given a technical meaning, just as is done in the sciences generally. Uh, I'm
1: sorry, but I'm afraid I have an appointment in two minutes that I have to go
0: to. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.